Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Ramin Wright. Ramin is an investment analyst at Luge Capital, an early stage venture capital fund. And with that, here's my interview with Ramin. Hello, Ramin. Hi there. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So Ramin Wright of Luge Capital, tell us about Luge Capital. So Luge Capital is an early stage fintech venture fund. We invest solely in the fintech vertical and across companies headquartered in Canada and the United States. Okay. And let's talk about the history of Luge. So Luge is yet one of a handful I've seen that are basically brought together by large general partners that were essentially established players, correct? That's right. So Luge was formally announced in April of 2018, but there was a lot of work in the back end before it launched. And it was really a consolidation of a lot of larger financial institutions in Canada that wanted to capitalize on all of the fintech innovation that's going on to give some of their resources and some of their capital towards growing the fintech scene. Fair enough. I mean, we've seen that with Portage uh, in the relationship to power, and I guess this is another venture to that. So who are these players? So we've got right now a set of five very good financial institutions. We have Sun Life Financial, very mm-hmm. large insurance carrier, La Caisse de Dépôt et Placement du Québec, which is a large Quebec pension fund, Desjardins Bank, Fonds de Solidarité, FTQ, and La Capitale. Heavily invested in Quebec there. Okay, good. So they, um, I guess you're bilingual? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> I grew up in Ottawa, so I need to be. So you have to be, yeah. yeah. So uh, tell me about your history and how you got involved. So I've been hanging out with early stage companies a lot. In the early days, I was an engineer and I had a few startup companies of myself. After that, I was actually working with two of the sharks on Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary and Robert Herjavec. Okay. And I worked on all of their Shark Tank deals. So saw all of the Shark Tank deals that came through for a few seasons of the show. And after that, I actually went on to the legal side. So I was acting as a lawyer in New York and I worked on hundreds of venture financings before deciding to come over to the investor side and pick up where I left off after Shark Tank. Well, first one with Shark Tank experience. Interesting. I can actually want to pick your brain about some of the deals and see if they're still alive. Um, (laughs) So, okay. So that's how you got there. So you mentioned early stage. Let's define that. What does that look like? So for us, early stage, we hang out typically around the seed and A rounds Mm -hmm. of a company. So our first check into a company will range on the order of quarter million to $2 million. Okay. And what verticals are you basically focusing on at this point? So we look at the whole fintech umbrella, which Mm -hmm. is uh, broadly defined. So anything from capital markets to wealth management, to insure tech, reg tech, we'll even dabble in blockchain and crypto technology. Interesting. Okay. But you're relatively new. So you only announced a couple of deals. And luckily, I think I've have I interviewed all of them. <laughs> I, think, I think you've interviewed all of them, which uh, is impressive. Yes, 100%. All right. So, that, so who have you invested in and what was the driving factor behind all each of those deals? Sure. So on the whole, as an umbrella, the driving factor is to invest in strong entrepreneurs with mm-hmm. big global appetites. Mm-hmm. And so to that end, the most recent company that you announced, that you interviewed, uh, was Owl Co., mm-hmm. which is in the KYC AML space, which yep. is a strong play in regulatory technology yeah. in the fintech sphere. Which, which for a boring sounding topic was a unbelievably fascinating approach. So it, yeah, it's an incredibly strong team with very strong traction to date, and we're excited for them. Yeah, I would have cut that check. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. 
Good. So that makes a lot of sense, especially given the play. I mean, I would think that that is a massive, massive issue for any financial institution. So mm -hmm. your backers must have been very interested to see that develop. Yeah, it's a, it's a very strong company. And something that we work with that's unique about us is our backers are all large financial institutions mm -hmm. and they all have a strong interest in working together with the companies that we invest in. So we're happy to be able to put the companies that we invest in in front of the innovation teams that are investors and uh, create a lot of value for both sides of the table there. So let's talk about what that looks like, actually. So what does that look like in the due, in the due diligence stage? How involved are they in vetting out the, uh, the possible candidates? So it's a good question. Within the due diligence stage, if there's something very technical or market sizing that we'd like to assess and validate, we'll do all our own primary work, but we have the ears of players at possibly the customers of some of these companies that we're working at to pick at. Yeah, I mean, that's usually valuable to actually be able to <laughs> prove your market before you actually put a dollar into it. That's exactly right. It's, yeah. it's very, very helpful. And especially at your stage. I mean, we're talking, you're talking seed and, and, and series A. I mean, these are, I'm sure more than one of them has come to you without actually proven mark, product market fit yet. That's right. Well, we look very strongly to find companies that do have that proven out and really to inject capital to fuel that rocket ship. Excellent. So once they made that investment, what's the relationship look like with the backers that you have? So we have very regular cadence with mm -hmm. our backers and we speak often about the companies that we've invested in and that we're seeing. So we're able to put our portfolio companies right in front of the innovation team and the partnership teams at our LPs to get that conversation going. And I mean, they must be excited, not only at the prospect of the cash injection, but also the, the, I mean, I would think that the business cards of the people backing you have got to be a big point for why they would choose you over other partners. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, excellent. So we talked about uh, the first one, let's talk about the next one. I think you also had Flinks on, correct? That's right. Flinks yeah. was our first investment, actually. Okay. So we're, we're very excited about them. What Flinks is doing is essentially open banking before open banking has come to Canada. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. So, yeah, I mean, so the driving factor there was what? There was no real driving. There was no real player in data aggregation in Canada at the time. And you guys wanted to get on board the ground floor there? That's right. Financial data aggregation, the ability to check information within someone's bank accounts, within someone's financial history, I think even to you as a wealth advisor would be very helpful to get a complete view of someone's financial yeah. history. You know, don't get me started. You know, those of you in the States who are listening to this, um, you guys are probably scratching your heads wondering like, what are you guys talking about? E-money's been around forever now. <laughs> and you know, all these other things, like data aggregation is table stakes in the US, whereas the rest of the world is like a non-factor at this point. But yeah, I mean, at a base level, just for data collection, incredible, a secondary level for tracking assets that are held away from us, hugely valuable. And you start thinking about the future, about how that can trigger all kinds of behavioral cues. And it's, um, yeah, we're in the dark ages in this country, I unfortunately. Think this is something we're excited about at Luge. Is, yeah. you know, we see open banking has come to fruition through the legislation in Europe. We've mm -hmm. got open banking in Europe. They're about to launch it in Australia. And through just the sheer competitiveness of the market in the United States, there is an industry-wide solution yep. within the U.S., but we're lagging a little bit in Canada. And we've seen recent government efforts by Ministry of Finance, Competition Bureau, even the Senate to kickstart the process and get open banking to Canada. Yep. It's something we've inserted ourselves into the process. So we've got a seat at the table to help push this legislation forward and make it something that will be helpful to spur innovation for new fintechs. So from your standpoint, I mean, it's twofold. From you know the 
venture capital side, I got to think that, yeah, open banking just expands the number of startups exponentially, potentially, right? So from your job, it makes a lot of sense. From your backer standpoint, what's the purpose for them wanting to back it? Really, the, the value to these FIs is in unlocking the value within that data. So this data is sitting inside the vaults of these FIs and maybe difficult to actually access and create new innovation on top of. By allowing access to that data, we're really unlocking the value that is hidden within these vaults. And that does have value to large FIs. I mean, it's, uh, I take it, I've mentioned it many times on the show, but have you read the paper on the Copernican revolution in banking? Sure have. Yeah, there we go. So, I mean, when you look at all the similar kind of innovations in technology, right? The establishment of, of broad-based operating systems, for instance, right? No one had to write base code anymore. You could just worry about writing unique apps, sure. right? You know, look at then, you know, say for example, AWS, you didn't dropping the cost of entry to advanced systems and, and servers basically spurred an entire generation of, of startups. And I think about like the number of people working within a financial institution on innovation versus the number of people sitting outside who, if they had the data set, could easily explore a million times, billions of times more opportunities than a financial institution can. I mean, it, I think that, you know, knock on wood, if this happens, I think, you know, 10 years down the road, the entire system looks completely different. I think that's right. And, and it's incredible to see the amount of just infrastructure layer innovation that's happening within fintech mm -hmm. that we think will spur more innovation down the line. So you mentioned AWS, which yeah. really sparked the ramp up of the ability for new startups to spin up and spin down servers whenever they need to and Absolutely. really lower their infrastructure costs. And we're seeing even people building on top of that, that is the AWS of FinTech. Mm -hmm. So for all those low level activities, opening a bank account, issuing a credit card, things like that, that very often new FinTech companies need to do, there are companies now offering that and yeah. being the AWS of FinTech. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a matter of time before we have established enough layers of infrastructure that someone can basically say, hey, you know what? I understand farmers in the Midwest better than anyone else. I understand, you know, I grew up in that environment, whatever it is. And I know how to market to them and being able to cobble together a bunch of vendors and create a Midwest farmers bank built off of everybody else's infrastructure, exactly. but being able to hyper target. And, you know, it's funny in Canada, we're used to only having a handful of financial institutions in every play in the U S it's, you know, it's countless, but I look at a world in the future where frankly, I think that we're going to get incredibly hyper market niche specific in this stuff. And people will be able to find something that is literally tailored to people just like them. I mean, God knows how long it's going to take, but we'll get there. I think that's right. You look at the world of FinTech and it really has exploded since uh, just about 2014, 2015 to yeah. now. And, it's it's incredible to see that amount of innovation and to have a front row seat to yeah, see it. I get to participate in it, so it's got to be fun. So that's uh, Flinks took us on an interesting sidetrack there with open banking, but it's a common theme around here. Who's the other public investment you made? That is Fineo. Uh, yes, Fineo, one of my favorite interviewees, Ali. You get that plug. Uh, so Fineo, so let's talk about what was appealing about Fineo from your standpoint, besides so, the fact that you're backed by major insurance companies. <laughs> <laughs> so Fineo is a very interesting company. They're an insure tech company that is really building the infrastructure that will link together life and health insurance companies. So what they're doing is enabling access to real-time quotes and real-time API calls between insurance companies to be able to drive better distribution channels through both brokerages and through direct-to-consumer channels. Every time I sit down and talk with Ali, it's uh, it's a big dream and he's chipping away at that mountain a little bit at a time. But yeah, I mean, especially for an industry that is unfortunately as technologically backwards as insurance, um, you know, it's nice to see people take up that sword and try to try to fight along. So 
those are the three public ones. You got one more you can't announce yet. I'm not going to push you on that. So let's let's talk about what it is you look for. What is it that makes a startup that comes to you out of all the deal flow you're getting stand out? What particularly piques your interest? Are there any commonalities, any any sort of kind of checklist that you work through? It's a really good question. And I think working at the early stage, like we are, we look very strongly to the team and the vision of the mm -hmm. company. And so when we look to find a very, very strong team, what we look for really are entrepreneurs with a global focus, a really big appetite, and who can execute on very large opportunities. And so to get all of that in one package in a founding team is something we look for very closely. So basically, end of the day, it's, and it makes sense, especially at that super that early stage. You really are just invented. It sounds cliche, doesn't it? You know, you're you're investing in the people more than anything else. That's right. We also look to the industry, mm -hmm. so we're looking for companies that are targeting remaining frictions within the financial services industry. And whether that's hmm. something that's a friction B2B, so something that you yourself might use within the wealth management space, or something B2C, so a customer is trying to send money. Right now it takes you know still many, so painful. <laughs> many days sometimes yeah. to send money, which is a friction that still exists within Canada. And we look to companies that are targeting those kinds of frictions. We've actually outlined, you can check on our website, a list of six ideas that we have within the fintech space hmm. for innovation that we think is well needed within the industry and innovation that we're looking for ourselves. I'm going to have to pull that down and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. So the uh, it's funny you mentioned the entire payment thing, because even the ones who look like they've cracked it really haven't cracked it. Because I was listening to a, um, a podcast, I think it was Planet Money. They were talking about Venmo, what happens when you send it to the wrong person, right? And Venmo makes it all look like it's instantaneous. For those of you not in the US, Venmo is a peer-to-peer -peer money transfer service. And then they got bought by PayPal as well. And this woman basically, her, her landlord basically said, yeah, send me the rent via Venmo. Got one letter wrong and sent it to the wrong person. So then this guy's worried that it's fraud and they're trying to get him to send back money that wasn't it. It ends up being this entire back and forth exchange. And then she he basically says, just tell, just basically call your bank and get them to stop it. And sure enough, she found out that even though it looks like it happened real time, the money hadn't been drawn out her bank account yet. Oh, <laughs> and it was gosh. gonna take it was gonna take a couple more days to clear that transaction. So it's funny, I find that even the ones who look like they've solved it haven't solved it. And in order to create this world where it looks like they've solved it, they've taken on this massive liability when you really think about it. So it's um it's pretty amusing. Mm -hmm. The world of payments is is uh something that's incredibly ripe for innovation. I oh. think I think especially real-time payments, as you say, mm -hmm. should just be frictionless, should be real-time. We think in the long run, mm -hmm. our vision is that payments are something that are simply almost eradicated from people's day-to-day -day lives. There should not be any friction mm -hmm. in actually paying for something. The activity of paying for your check at a restaurant is something where there's a lot of friction, where there just doesn't need to be. No. And, uh, I think there's opportunity for a solution in that space as well. Agreed. I mean, even the innovation we've seen today, it's, it's funny how, income, so how people can't wrap their head around how some of these problems solve, have been solved. So a very well-known grocery chain in Toronto, when I go to use Apple Pay, still insists on my signature. Sure. And they're just, I got into a debate once with the cashier the first time it happened. Like, like why? They're like, well, how are we supposed to verify it's you? I'm like, I have a face print on my phone. <laughs> Do you think my wedding signature is actually more secure than the face print on the phone? They weren't too impressed. Uh, I did tweet it to the company and they were like, what location did that happen at? I'm like, it happened already at three locations. Every so, location. Every location. So please tell me why this is a problem. So if you don't mind, like, I don't mind going through those six ideas for innovation if you want to share them now. Sure. Well, so, let me okay. let me go for, sure. for one of them right yeah. now. Sure. So one of them is banking for kids. 
So right now you look at traditional banking and probably when you grew up, you had one of those paper passbooks. And when you'd go into oh, the God, bank yes. yeah. to deposit your allowance, you'd give your allowance to the teller and they would update your passbook. And it was a fun activity and you really mm -hmm. created a connection with the bank and started creating that brand loyalty from a very young age. Mm -hmm. That's not happening anymore. No. And there really isn't any tailored service towards children, towards financial literacy for children, mm -hmm. something for which you can give kids money and have the service evolve as the child grows older. So at first, it may be something that simply gives them an allowance. And as they grow up, they might eventually get a credit card. We think that banking for kids is an opportunity where there is field for innovation. So anyone listening, I got an idea for you. You ever heard of a moon jar? I have not. So this is a system, I don't know who developed it, but it's basically moon jar, moon jars. You basically, when you're giving kid allowance, you try and teach them different values, spend, save, and give, right? Sure. So the entire idea is they have to allocate money to each of the three, right? And it's best works when it's reinforced. So if they spend, that's the reinforcement. If they save, you pay them some sort of interest. If they basically give, then they basically, it's, you know, it's a charitable community thing. They need to be involved in selection and, and, and basically distribution of those funds. I agree with you. I, at first when you said banking for kids, I thought to myself, I typically try to prevent people from opening accounts and kids' names, but for allowance and stuff like that, I think like a digital banking moon jar would be fantastic. And as a parent, I would actually like to see that entire problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very, it's very, very interesting. Once you yeah. get into it, you can see a lot of opportunity for things that would really resonate with kids and yeah. really resonate with parents as but well. Fundamental fun, uh, like financial education from an early age, like that would be fantastic. So, you know, we've already covered uh, banking for kids. You said there's six on there. We accidentally covered one through invisible payments already. So we have a couple more topics. So let's talk about um, another one you have, which is global identity. I agree with you. <laughs> That's a need. Uh, let's talk about it from your perspective. What is it you guys are saying about it? Great. Global identity is an interesting problem. So in the world of financial services, you often need to go through a KYC or AML process in mm -hmm. order to sign up for new financial services from the consumer standpoint and also sometimes from the business standpoint. And what you're really doing here is giving your personal identity information to all of these different services that you're signing up with so that mm -hmm. they can verify your identity. The problem there is security concern, A, and also B, the problem that all of these people who are verifying your identity need to then look at all the rules that are required for KYC and mm -hmm. AML. And what every can they look at? What can't they look at? Yeah, every jurisdiction they operate within will have different rules on how you authenticate someone. We look at the opportunity here as being a central repository for someone's identity, that there would be a central hub that would effectively store someone's identity information and authenticate them and say, we're able to, to show that John Smith has uploaded all of their identity documentation to be verified under level two verification mm -hmm. in Canada, United States, and mm -hmm. Singapore. And if they upload two more pieces of information, they'll be verified in all of Europe mm -hmm. as well. And then that tool could be accessed by anyone who is trying to validate that person's identity from the business side or from the consumer to very easily sign up for new financial services. Interesting. So I've heard similar spins on this before. We talked in the show about the concept of personal data lockers, right? And, you know, we typically talked about that in terms of financial data, but personal identification is, is another concept of that. And I've heard various blockchain applications contemplated as, as a means of doing this. It's funny because, I mean, when in the early days of Facebook, I think that they really saw themselves as a, like, you know, we're going to validate your identity 
identity through your network. If your network's real, then they're going to validate you're real too. They don't seem to really care about that much anymore. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, but I, you're right. It's interesting. So you're talking about something where I opt in, I basically put in all my stuff. Someone basically, I, I go to apply for something. There's an API call to my data locker. I approve access based on that. And there's a disclosure similar to like when I link something to my Gmail, you know, this vendor is going to look at these specific data points and you consent. Yes, there is a huge market for that. Good luck cracking it. <laughs> that's right. And that's, that's one of these uh, fintech infrastructure plays that really enables yeah. the industry. Identity is a, yeah, that's a, that's a huge one. Uh, I, you know, I also think it would also have the luxury of solving my contact book at problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's uh, that's one that seems, people seem to have given up on that because it's just too complicated. Another one you we, we on your list was the basically personal credit score history uh, that goes around the world with you. Let's talk about what that looks like and what the challenges are there. So I'll, I'll illustrate it. So I recently moved from Toronto to New York, from Canada to the United States. Good luck getting a credit card. And I could <laughs> not get a credit card. What yeah. I was approved for was a $500 prepaid MasterCard. They won't even let you prepay for more than 500 bucks. Which That's really hilarious. wasn't even a credit card at all, if you think about it. No, it's a debit card. Um, so having some kind of portable credit history, portable credit score mm -hmm. that crosses borders is something that we think is needed in the industry. There is opportunity for innovation here. And whether that be through the traditional credit scoring agencies or through some new opportunity, some new innovation that's maybe powered by open banking that could see all of your transactions all of your financial history across the different jurisdictions in which you've lived and in which you've made financial transactions, something that could be a holistic credit score that is actually portable with you mm -hmm. across jurisdictions. It's funny because people don't realize this, but technically credit scores are portable, at least between Canada and the US. However, good luck getting it done by That's Equifax right. or whoever it is. Because I've known, I've read about this being done. I've, I've known people who've done it. And then I send people on this little mission to do it. And they're like, I, they're, they told me it's not possible. It's, and you know what, you think about how ridiculous it is. Equifax and TransUnion operate both in Canada and the US. We were subjected to the Equifax hack, just like any well, hack. You can't call leaving your password and admin as admin and admin a hack. It's a foolish safety flaw. But we were subjected to that as well. And let me get this straight. I cross a border and the same company can't, with my consent, port that over and give me a FICO score? Come on. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like just It's borderline laughable. And the one interesting one you also mentioned too was frictionless real estate. Let's talk about that. Frictionless real estate. So in the process of buying a home, how many people are you talking oh, to? Let's not get involved. And oh. on both countries in Canada and the US, it's a, it's, a, it's a small party, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, we count around 10 people hmm. uh, who are involved in a real estate transaction from the buyer, the seller, the buying agent, the selling agent, the mortgage broker, the lender, the lawyer, the appraiser, home inspector, and the contractor. There's a lot of parties involved, all of which need their own information in order to do the job that they're doing and need to be contracted with separately. We think there's um, a lot of opportunity here to make this easier. Buying a home today is an experience that comes with a lot of friction that we think really doesn't need to be there. So we see opportunity here to create a more frictionless real estate buying opportunity. I've seen several blockchain plays basically contemplate parts of that equation, specifically on title changes and, and stuff like that. Inspection, you still have to have that. But yeah, I think I think you're right. I think just it's going to be to be a hybrid, right? There's too many people involved, right? But just creating one company that does all the clearing for this would be hugely valuable for people. Interestingly enough, I think one of the one of the points that not made there, which I think is fascinating, is the blockchain's potential for 
basically fracturing real estate ownership instead of being, I could technically sell any cash. I could technically sell 10% of my home and I can. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Fractional ownership of real estate powered by the blockchain. Yeah. That would be, you start thinking about the number, first of all, because I mean, especially with the aging demographics of the population, right? A conventional last stitch effort to stay in your home is to reverse mortgage. So your only option is debt because you can't sell a part of the house, right? It just doesn't work that way, right? Or you could, but that's an incredibly friction-filled issue. But being able to blockchain power the sale of 0.5% of my home or just sell off little portions of it as I need to, that would be, first of all, incredibly economically empowering for so many people and open up all kinds of interesting investment opportunities for people on the other side who have the capital. That's right. And, and we really are looking at in what ways can blockchain technology power new innovation? So we see the actual tool of you've got Bitcoin, but you've also got the technology it runs on, which yep. is this blockchain. Absolutely. And blockchain really is a new, a brand new tool in computer science that people are still figuring out how to use, how to leverage, how to build on top of. And like you say, fractional ownership of real estate is one use case that mm -hmm. people have developed within the blockchain sphere that we think is really exciting. I think so. I think so too. I, I find my, my struggle with it is that it's less now since the crypto winter happened, even though we're back at over 10,000 now on Bitcoin. The My struggle with it is I found for the longest period of time, everybody was just throwing blockchain at everything. Sure. And I swear, I mean, I, I teach uh, part-time too. And one of my students was talking about how my asset class let list was incomplete because it didn't have, it didn't have um, crypto assets and it was still early days back then. And he talked about how he was in this hackathon and they, you know, they did this thing for the real estate company and then they put all that data on the blockchain. And I said, please tell me why you need to have multiple sources of truth in, a, in that piece of data. That's a fair and, question. And he stopped and thought about it and just lowered his head. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like you just you just quintupled your server, your server requirements. Ooh, it's a very fair question. Yeah. The, the use of blockchain where it's not needed is, no, really is a drag on a business. It's huge. And I think it's, wasn't there a company who changed the name to something blockchain on the NYC and then it had like a, a five times of its, uh, of its stock price. <laughs> you know, it's like back in the days of the dot-com bubble when, you know, just add your dot, e dot-com in front of your name and you're, you're done. Like it was, it was money out of the thing. Okay. So before we wrap up, I have the, if you listen to the podcast, which I know you have, there's the three questions I, I uh, ask everybody. So uh, hopefully you prepared because these stump people, if you had one wish for something you could change in the industry and your job and your company, whatever it is, what would it be? It's a good question. I think what I would look for would be more female founders. You look at the fintech industry on a whole, early stage fintech companies have just under 10% female founders or female management, which I think is a problem in the industry. This is something that doesn't have an easy solution. Um, it's certainly not something that I could propose a solution to today, but I would, I would love to see more female involvement in early stage fintech. Agreed. I think the problem is when you marry together two industries into a Venn diagram that have traditionally been not overly female welcoming. Unfortunately, as we know, there's a there's a limitation. There's not as many female coders out there, right? So the tech side is weaker and the financial side has been accused of being toxic in its masculinity in many cases, not necessarily that great a place for women to be. However, different niches are wonderful for that. You get this kind of you know, two limited sets combined to create an even more limited set, unfortunately. I think that's absolutely right. I, th I think it's something that needs exposure. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd like to call it out to you and to your audience today as something that 
we would like to see more of. Absolutely. Same here. I'll tell you, it's interesting segue point. I've tried to basically get as many female founders on here as possible. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you one thing I will notice. I, I will say in general, generalization, they seem less interested in telling their story than the men do. But in general, it's been hard to find as many just because there's a serious lack of them. And if you're a female founder out there with an interesting story to talk about, feel free to fire me off an email. Happy to have a conversation. The next question I have is what's been the biggest challenge in getting Luge to where it is to date? It's a really good question. I think when you look at the company that we're investing in. One of the problems they have is that they're selling their product many times to large financial institutions whose sales cycles are often measured in quarters mm -hmm. or in years. And to early stage companies, a year is basically the entire life of the company before they can get a sale. So yeah. what we've been looking for is for these larger institutions to have more streamlined processes to work with startup companies and maybe even to have a different process going through with startup companies than with someone like IBM. Yeah, I mean, that's, we've talked about that with Owl specifically, and it's, uh, you're right. I mean, you stop and think about how long their procurement and vetting processes are, and then you think about the life of these cash, it's called constrained companies. It's like, you do realize that something that could be the best solution you ever came across, that if you hire them, they're on rocket fuel. You could, you're jeopardizing them, and you're really losing this opportunity. That's right. Well, it's such a friction in the industry that, that companies like Owl have actually built their product around the knowledge that this sales cycle is so difficult yeah. and trying to cut around the corners that often causes slowness in yeah. the cycle. Well, it's funny. I, uh, I used to, uh, the former head of uh, a well-known software company and global software company, the Canadian rep who was working in, in the financial services sector, got promoted to or moved to the government sector, to which when he told me that, I'm mm -hmm. like, what, the sales cycle wasn't long enough for you in, in finance? Because it's the only, it's only taught by government. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I got to think that they're going to have to start changing their mentalities in general. The, the pace of innovation is so fast and the consumer's expectation for what they're willing to put up with is so substantially different than it used to be. I mean, you know, some simple, simple example here. Client says, I want to know what I paid on since I started with you. My head just explodes. It's just like, oh my God, it's so much work. Because first off, I can tell you what got billed out of the accounts. That's an easy button click. But then like for me to know what something with an underlying MER or management fee like got charged, it's not actually doable with my current tool set. It sounds like a very simple request and it is. But how much longer are people going to continue to put up with that kind of incomplete answer? I think that's right. And that we're even seeing new fintech startups that are addressing this problem directly by trying to, me place there. <laughs> <laughs> trying to build actually an infrastructure layer on top of the inf existing infrastructure at mm -hmm. large FIs so that they can more quickly integrate and have their processes available. To mm. fintech startups. Love it. Fintech squared. That's <laughs> awesome. And then last question, what is it that excites you the most about what you're working on and gets you out of bed every morning to keep doing what you're doing? It's got to be the energy in this space. There's so much energy <laughs> in early stage startups. There's passion, there's vision. Yeah. There's a real drive to succeed and build and grow and do something better. It was in the past, having a, a front row seat to that innovation to see what's cutting edge and to see what's driving early stage entrepreneurs is something that I'm lucky to have. And I love to see it every single day. Absolutely. I mean, I got to tell you, since I started this thing almost, I don't know, I'm like, I'm recording this now. This is going to be episode 80 something. This has been an overwhelmingly positive experience. Everyone, I'm, almost everyone I met universally has been wonderful to deal with. I've developed several friendships out of it. And just seeing these guys grow over time is so inspiring. And to have a front row seat and be working in partnership with them, that must be a fantastic feeling. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 
Well, Ramin, thank you so much for taking the time. Very much appreciated. Uh, we covered a lot of ground here today. And I think, right. uh, I think if people are looking for uh, share this with anyone who's interested in just general fintech topics, because we covered quite a lot. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking yeah. with you. Thanks. So that was my interview with Ramin Wright of Douche Capital. As you can see, we covered a lot of ground on that one. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. There was a lot of interesting topics covered. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever to get your podcast. Until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.